0: Aha, come on in. <laughs> There's a there is a chair all available for you. <laughs> is Heinz here too, or did he take off? Oh he's here. Okay. I thought oh, there he is. I wondered about you, Heinz. I asked, where's Heinz? His chair is empty. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. Well, good deal. Okay. So we are just going to go very methodically, step-by-step through this, but I want to start um, with just a little introduction about something that came to my attention through my daughter. She had posted this on her Facebook page, and I thought it was so good. It is a um, just an article that was put out by the president of the Southern Seminary and Boys College. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, but it's. It, I, I did go through. I did check them out. Checked out their doctrines. They're good, but I could have told you it was good just by reading the article because it's. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh yeah, he's real good. oh yeah, he's real good. See, James confirms. Yay! Thank you, James. Okay. Um, all right, you know, their their motto is for the truth, for the church, for the world, and for the glory of God. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the mission, they are a Southern Baptist seminary. Uh, is to be totally committed to the Bible as the word of God, to the great commission as our mandate, and to be a servant of the churches. So this is good. All right, so let me just read this, other because this And I want, whenever you hear something that makes you think of Hebrews, you might just, you know, give a nod because I I thought it really applied very well to what we're looking at here in this book. This is what he's he's speaking of. This is while America's evangelical Christians are rightly concerned about the secular world's view rejection of biblical Christianity, we ought to give some urgent attention to a problem much closer to home. Biblical illiteracy in the church. Does that make you think of a verse in a chapter already? Uh, this scandalous problem is our own, and it's up to us to fix it. Now, I have to say, just interjecting here, I'm not, I am speaking to the choir. This is the group who has already made that commitment and is already really applying themselves to having biblical literacy an understanding and a knowledge of God's Word. But I can tell you, biblical illiteracy is killing us, It's killing the church, It's killing our moral values, it's killing our nation. On the whole, so this, this has a, a domino effect into our lives and into the world that we live in. He says, researchers uh, have put the problem squarely this way. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Well, researchers tell us it's worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to data from this particular research, he says it, it can't even, they can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. No wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time, right? <laughs> they don't know what they are. What is the bottom line? Well, increasingly, America is biblically illiterate. Multiple surveys reveal the problem is in stark contrast, or in stark terms. According to 80% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Okay, this is really a problem, guys. I know that sounds really good, but meh. Those identified as born-again Christians did better by only 1%. I know. Isn't that a, doesn't that make you just feel ashamed? I'm just, It makes me feel sick. Um, a majority of adults think that the Bible teaches them that the most important person, purpose in life is taking care of one's family. Now, we know taking care of one's family is important, yes? But is it the number one priority for a Christian? You tell me what is our number one priority. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your so, so, thank you, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Okay. So, if loving God is the first is the first priority, yet they think basically loving and taking care of the family is the first priority. How messed up would their priorities be if they get them out of order? Right? Everything everything gets. Up to, uh, you know, turned upside down. Some of the stis- statistics are enough to perplex even those aware of the problem. Uh, th- uh, there's another poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> no kidding. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah we're a husband and wife. (laughs) A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. (laughs) We are in big trouble, he says. (laughs) Secularized Americans uh, should not be expected to be knowledgeable about the Bible. That's true, right? Secular Christians secular Americans are not they're not Christians necessarily. As the nation's civic uh, civic conversation is stripped of all biblical references and content, Americans increasingly live in a scripture-free public space. Confusion and ignorance of the Bible's content should be assumed in post uh, Christian America. The larger scandal is biblical ignorance among Christians. So, I mean, it's one thing for secular Americans to not know, but when when you walk into the church and you start having conversations with Christians, people that should know the Word of God, and they have no knowledge of what you're talking about, you begin to jump into a conversation and you make a mention of something that really is not that deep or that perplexing, but they can't follow you or they don't have any awareness of it, or they're just apathetic, they really could care less about the conversation. This is a huge scandal for for our Christian church today. Um, Choose whatever statistic or survey you like. The general pattern is the same. America's Christians know less and less about the Bible and it shows. How can a, a... generation be biblically shaped in its understanding of human sexuality when it believes Sodom and Gomorrah to be a married couple. No wonder Christians show a growing tendency to compromise on the issue of homosexuality. Many who identify themselves, because in other words they haven't studied about homosexuality, if they don't know about Sodom and Gomorrah they have not studied the subject of homosexuality from God's perspective. Right? Okay. Many who identify themselves as Christian are similarly confused about the gospel itself. An individual who believes that God helps those who help themselves finds salvation by grace and justification by faith alone to be alien concepts. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, Christians who lack biblical knowledge are the products of churches that minimalize biblical knowledge. But i got to say, although he's kind of attacking the churches here, and I'm going to finish reading it, but it is still up to the individual. Each one of us are individually responsible for our own spiritual growth. And if we don't take it seriously, we cannot blame our pastors for us not disciplining our own personal life. Right, be like me blaming my dentist that I didn't brush my teeth, because I'm going to see him once a year, right? So it's a crazy idea. Um, Bible teaching now account, often accounts for only a diminishing fraction of the local congregation's time and attention. The move to small group ministry has certainly increased opportunities for fellowship, but many of these groups never get beyond superficial Bible study, and that is so true. You know, small groups are great, but really, truly their intention is fellowship, and that is what you're going to mostly get in that kind of an environment. You're not going to get solid Bible study, because no one in that group, when they show up, have done solid Bible study to really dig in and to methodically do in a way like what we're going to do here, for instance, or in other studies like BSF or, or others like that, where they actually unfold and break apart the pieces and lay it all out and systematically help you learn your doctrines. You're not going to get that in a small group Bible study, just not, okay? Your uh, youth ministries are asked to fix problems, provide entertainment, and keep kids busy. How many local church youth programs actually produce substantial Bible knowledge in young people? Those of you who have young teenagers no. Mm-hmm. That's a rarity. But once he hit seven, it was all play. All gone, it's all playtime, yes. Yep. Even the pulpit has been sidelined in many congregations. Preaching, preaching has taken a back seat to other concerned in corporate worship. The centrality of biblical teaching to the formation of disciples is lost. The Christian ignorance leads to Christian, um, Christians basically avoiding the work and sometimes even worse, just not even caring. They become very apathetic. This reality is our problem. It is up to this generation of Christians to reverse the course. Uh, Recovery starts at home, and it starts with ourselves. He doesn't say that part. I said that. (laughs) Parents are to be the first and most important educators of their own children, diligently teaching them the word of God. Of course we know that, and I, I know that that you all in here, I'm sure, are parents who diligently did teach your children and took them places where they would get additional teaching. But beyond that now, at this point, with disregard to being a parent, even though you are personally responsible to seek out your own spiritual growth and be diligent in in doing it, it's your responsibility. Parents cannot franchise their responsibility to the congregation. We cannot franchise the responsibility to our pa- our pastor to try to teach us everything on a Sunday morning in a one-hour sermon. It's impossible, right? God assigned parents uh, this non-negotiable responsibility, and children must see their Christian parents as teachers and fellow students of the word. I think this man is very busy in youth ministry. <laughs> He's applied a lot of... of Um, time to that. Churches must recover the centrality and the urgency of biblical teaching and preaching and refuse to sideline the teaching ministry of the preacher. Pastors and churches too busy or too distracted to make biblical knowledge a central aim of ministry will produce believers who simply do not know enough to be faithful disciples. You can't live what you don't know. Now, listen, this is how he says it. It's really good. We will not believe more than we know, and we will not live higher than our beliefs. That's a pretty good... I almost like to, like, cross-stitch that on a pillow or something, you know, (laughs) hang it or whatever in my house. Maybe I could quilt it with, you know, applique. Many uh, fronts of Christian compromise in this generation can be directly traced to biblical illiteracy in the pews and the absence of biblical preaching and teaching in our homes and churches. This generation must get deadly serious about the problem of biblical illiteracy or a frighteningly large number of Americans, Christians included, will go on thinking that Sodom and Gomorrah lived happily ever after. Very good article, don't you think? Very encouraging, but he really does highlight or he brings to a spotlight a really a serious problem, and would you say this is totally a new phenomenon in this generation? What do we see in what you looked at this week in the book of Hebrews? Anything sound familiar to that? Absolutely. There were plenty of passages in where there where this author is saying to them, you need to pay better attention. You need to press into maturity, right? So this, these kinds of exhortations apparently have been needed from time immemorial, which tells me human nature does not change, right? Uh, but I am very proud to be a part of a group like this where you all really do apply yourselves to study well. And um, it is it is never my intention to set a mark too high for anyone. I What I want you all to do, and we, I've talked to several of you this week, you do what you can do. You come when you can come. You make it a priority in your life that you don't book things on the, the days and the hours when you should be doing your homework. But also there is plenty of room for grace. If you have to be out of town and you have a family emergency or you have, family, you have grandchildren you must go visit, That's a good thing, right? There are going to be things that are going to take you away occasionally. Um, But I do think this is the right moment to kind of make the challenge and the call at the opening of the book of Hebrews to say, you know, be diligent to apply yourself to this study, and God will bless it. And you will just, you will be so filled up with God's word and so excited about the things that you're learning, it will spill over into your life and it will transform, It will. it is truly a re- renewing of your mind. So that then you will walk in a way which is worthy, which is honorable, right? One of the issues in the book of Hebrews were these people who were putting Christ to shame over and over again because they were living in a, in, in acts of disobedience, which did that, Um I remember when we did Ezekiel, we saw that happen with them too, right? To the point that then what did God have to do to the whole nation? Had to remove them off the land because they had disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed and they brought, they, they caused God's name to be shamed among the nations. We do not want to be among those. We want to be faithful to commit ourselves to this, to this study and... With that said, I would like to dig in. I'm ready to go on this. How about you guys? Can I say
1: something? Yes. Um, we found that one of our friends, uh, he's only seven years old, and the school he was going to is teaching them about rainbows and New Age training. And I thought,
0: you know, they're getting further and further away from God's truth. Yes. Thankfully, we've got a lot of good... Parents who, though, train their children at home and can counter that or, and or, if you can afford it, you can have private schooling. But that's hard. Yes, please, make a speech. Hines. Okay, sure, come on up. I'll give you my mic. Yes. Yes, by handling what they know. Yes. That's exactly right thank you by the way mission is to eradicate bible illiteracy awesome that's a good see that is a really good goal we should we should put that as part of our class goal to, you know to eradicate illiteracy Yeah. How does he know he knows the real thing? That's right.
1: Another brain, same thing. Okay. But the way it's presented to who we want to be inclusive. I
0: know. Be, I know. I know. I know.
1: That really yeah, that's what we have to do. But if we don't realize that it's false teaching, whatever
0: you want to call it, you said okay. They have been they have been deceived and carried away by the deception of Satan to believe that these other things that they are doing are going to bring more people in. they're going to expose more people to the Bible and therefore they they view it in the end as a good method to get there but that is not what the Word of God says as a matter of fact, when we did the book of Acts, one of the first things we saw is the churches were birthed. Their, their priority was the, the preaching of who Jesus is, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then the fellowshipping of, of them with one another, and in prayer and in Bible study, they sat underneath the teachings of the, of the apostles. You know, that is the, the bread and butter of Christianity, and that is where we need to stay focused, right? Yes, please do. That's right. That's right. Sorry, I made a big mess. No, that's right. I mean, I do, absolutely, the scripture is very clear that we need to live as an example before the Lord what we truly believe. But there there does have to be something that comes out of our mouth as well. And the only thing that can come out of your mouth is what you've stored up in your heart. And the only thing you, and I got to say that, Um, if you aren't careful, you can store up things in your heart thinking that it's all right. But if you haven't really studied it through so that you can explain it, when the challenges come, you don't know what to do with it. You You can't defend why you have a faith or a belief about something. And maybe you're even wrong. Once you actually dig it out and start studying, you might actually untangle some things. I have through through the years, many things in my life that I had thought was true, I found out really was not, and I had to fix it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Be humble and be teachable. And that's what God wants from us. But try to get it right, right? So this is what we're gonna try to do today. We're gonna try to get it right. Now, one of the ways we do that with precept and with inductive Bible study is to, before you get into a book and begin to start taking apart the, the statements or the instructions or the exhortations that are in that book, before you tackle any major subject in the book, you first want to get a big picture view of what's going on. Because it's important to have context set in order to properly interpret and properly apply then those various topics and subjects right so to set context what do we need to do somebody give me some some points that we know in order to set context what are the steps that we take okay you're gonna look at the people the places and events and when you look at them what are you what are you doing uh, what is your intent when you say okay there's there's a person now what do I do with that there you go, make a list <laughs> and and when by making a list, what does that help uh, us do when we look at our list after we've accumulated a list on a particular person or subject? what happens? That's right, okay, so this week we looked at two. People's in particular, right? We looked at our author and our recipient, and as we did that, and as we began to make lists on them, did y'all you make your lists on your author and your recipient? I'm so thankful because we're going to be doing that today together on the board, and I want your input on the things that you that you noted about them. Um, and I want to also take you to another level about of, of list making. I want to try to do something that's more analytical once we get some of the facts down. Okay, but. Um, List making, what, it, what is going to happen for us as we're making our list about our author and our recipient is you're going to begin to see certain things keep coming up over and over again. It will begin to, to then surface, uh, rise to the surface, kind of like cream. You know, it just rises up to the top and all of a sudden you start to see what the major emphasis is or the major, the major points are that he is trying to address. Um, what becomes major is what's seen over and over right? Is this thing making noise? It is driving me crazy. (laughs) I wasn't sure what it was. Okay. I don't think it's coming from here. I think it's coming from back here. Yeah, I don't know. I'm so sorry. Anyway, I got distracted there. Okay, there's a ball. (laughs) There's a flower. (laughs) It's a butterfly. (laughs) No, it's a noisy mic. It's driving me crazy. I'm not sure what it is that's making that crazy sound. It's just, okay, let me try it. I'm sure. Yeah, we need a new one of these, that's for sure. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so let's see if that works. Okay, let's start by getting some basic information then. In order to set context, we want to kind of see the book on the whole, right? One of the very first things you really need to do, of course, is to read through the book on the whole just to get the, the, the boundaries of it and to kind of see what the flow is and to see kind of generally what this author is saying. And so Kay had us do that on day one, homework. And in the course of that, then she also said, now, as you're reading through this, pay attention to, to try to discern what kind of literary work it is that you're looking at, right? so what did you determine was the literary work what kind what what is the style of literary work here? it's a letter it's it's so obvious right okay um now a letter now, okay, so it's a letter, and so therefore. In that letter then, what kind of things did you see going on? Can you describe this letter to to us? Okay, so it was a letter, and he did a letter to exhort. And tell me, where did you see that particular reference that you're speaking of? In 1322. Okay, he's going to exhort. Besides exhorting, what else does he do in this letter? He does a lot of warning, doesn't he? What else does he do? He teaches, he teaches really doctrines, don't you think? I was talking with a group yesterday at the front desk, Kathy and I and a couple of others, and I was saying one of the cool things that I've seen this week in looking at this book is how very much like, I think, like Romans it really is, in that it's a doctrinal book. It's a book which teaches us doctrine after doctrine after doctrine that are quite in-depth, and we're going to get a chance to look at some subjects, I think, in here that will give us not a full um, inductive, you know, complete study on each of these subjects, but it will give us enough of pieces. Because it's a doctrinal teaching, he wants you to understand these Truths. Therefore, you can basically start a good list on some of the things that you can learn. When you open chapter one, one of the first subjects that pops up to the top is who? Jesus. Jesus. Right. And in Jesus, then you begin to make your list. Now we're going to be doing that, I think, this next week. When you do that, you're going to begin to get some doctrinal points about who Jesus is what his design role is, you know, how he fits into this picture of our salvation. And what we do then with that is we add it to the other things that we've studied previously so that you begin to build or broaden your understanding of who Jesus actually is. Um, Another subject group, another people group, or I should say spiritual group that shows up in chapter one or who? Angels. How many people do you know are really messed up about their understanding about angels? Really, really messed up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Some entire, yes, and and all of the TV shows. (laughs) I mean, totally messed up. So there's another, I mean, it's only one chapter, and it's a small little segment, but it is filled with some really good doctrinal points about Who are angels? What is their position? Even in their position relating to us and um, uh, just in passing, what is the conclusion concerning angels and our worshiping them when you finish with chapter 1? No. You should not. And the reason you should not is because why? They're created and they're down here on the rung and who are they sent to be ministering servants to? Eventually you'll see this to us who receive salvation and to Jesus and God. Exactly. So just a couple of little points there about that. So this literary style, understanding your literary style helps you understand that, yes, it's it's a letter and that can sound rather benign, but this is a letter that exhorts them. And what is an exhortation? What is the purpose to exhort? There you go. To urge you to move forward, to do something, right? To respond to the truth that you've been given. So he's going to exhort them in all kinds of manners concerning each of these subjects that are going to come up along the way. And then what we're going to see is there's going to be one central subject which will rise to the top as the most powerful, the most powerful, Fo- central focused subject, and from that then we are going to build a huge doctrinal base on this. So it, it is a letter of exhortation. He does a lot of warning. Now, what do we mean by warning? Watch that. <laughs> That's right. You had better pay close attention. You need to pay closer attention. Is He literally says it almost word for word in the book. Pay closer attention, and then he's going to teach us darkness. Okay, so that's the literary style. So, yes. It's also struck me as always that it's so prophetic. I think it's one of the most prophetic in the
1: past sense because the author is explaining, like Christ said. He, said,
0: he went through the scriptures and he showed them all that referred to him. hmm And that's what's happening. Yes. That is true, and so that actually, you kind of take, you kind of lead me into a a little side side show I've got over here, which has nothing to do with your homework, but I did it for myself, and it's something I like to do every time. Let me just tell you some questions I posed to myself, and then I developed a timeline based on some of these points that I came up. I, I said to myself, you know, Katie, I need to do a timeline of Bible book writings, right? what basically, what has already been out there in Christendom that these believers that we're reading and studying about right now, what's already out there for them to have had knowledge of and had access to, right? And okay, yes. Okay. So hold on. Also, I said to myself, I need to make a list of the expectations that Israel had for their coming Messiah. Who, who was it that they expected him to be and be like? And Because I think this kind of filters in. It's not as, as heavy of an important thought, but I think it does help you to better understand the conflicts that are going on for these new believers in Christ and why this author is having to write to them to try to draw them back in line with this new thing, this new covenant that they are in right and with that then came the next thought was well what was the Hebrew experience for for worship right and and how long had they been doing that for because do you think that matters you know what you know we know that basically this is a letter just by the title of the book Hebrews these are Hebrew believers who have been worshiping in a Jewish faith system for how many generations right? And do you think that has an impact on the challenges that that this leader has, this author, who is trying to discipline them and trying to correct them and trying to exhort them into a new system of worship? And, And does that give you a little different feel or sense of understanding concerning these people as you think of it from their perspective where were they in history right so that was kind of what I wanted to do so where in history we go so for me almost always unless you're in the Old Testament then you would start earlier but I like when if I'm in the New Testament book I just start with the cross right I know before the cross is 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 events that have happened but it's not quite as important for me at the immediate moment to try to try to get my context down for where I'm at we do know that the Christ, Christ has been, um, uh, has come, He has been crucified and He has been resurrected. At this point, we also know that the church has been birthed. Correct? Okay, so we've got the cross, the church. It's going to be a very simple timeline. I would say about, I'm just going to give a general year, about 33 AD. It could be a little later or whereabouts, but we're in there. Now, there is another real significant point in this. Concerning church and worship systems that are going on, what seems to be the conflict for these believers in this book? this temple thing keeps coming up. And it, it actually helps us to really understand the author a little bit better too as we be, come to see and to, to discern basically that he seems to be a quite um, knowledgeable about the temple system and that, worship of syst- that system of worship, right? So it seems like either he himself came out of that um, or he was exposed to it for great periods of time so that he had thorough knowledge. My guess would be he, he lived it. He knew it because he was among them. So knowing this, I want to put this on my timeline, knowing, uh, do we know whether or not the temple is still in practice at the time of the writing of this book? Okay, for one thing, it wouldn't make sense, but I can tell you there's actually a passage in there. I'm going to wait on you all to see if you can find it at some point, but there's actually a verse in there where he, he talks about the fact that, that he worships at an altar, that those who serve in the temple have no right to eat that. Do you remember that? Okay, I'll, I'll wait on you guys. I'll give it to you later. I have it here, but I want you to see it for yourself maybe. All right, so we've got the temple. So we know the temple is up. Still up and living. Now, we've got the writing of Hebrews. So, so one of my questions was, okay, so about when was Hebrews probably written? Well, we, we can only go to our variety of, of resources to try to help us discern a date. Did any of you all do that? Did you come up with an approximate date for Hebrews writing? before obviously we know this is 70 AD we know the church was birthed in 33 so it's going to be somewhere in there right so okay
1: so you have to know that it's okay has been released, so that
0: okay so it's gotta be in there
1: just
0: almost years. at the Okay so my mine I've seen some as early as 64 up to 68 AD and it's a question mark but it, it's in there generally one of the books I did I'm just going to read to you what I what I came up with when I did this um, there are there are going to be some approximate dates on the writings of books right for us who, who wrote which book at what time and what order is always a little challenging. It's a, it's a web. And if we had the time, we could actually probably iron it out. We could probably sit down and try to figure out a lot of it. We could at least get it in the correct order. And I kind of did that back when we did Acts with a couple of the books. Um, but here's what he, this author says about it. These are approximate dates from one source and, as you would expect, highly debated. However, the dates are close. They're close enough to give us a good idea of what the Hebrew church had at least some knowledge of and by what was probably already circulating among the Christians. In other words, and that's really all we want to know for our purpose right here. We're not trying to date it. What we're trying to do is say, okay, what did they already know? If this is when Hebrews was written... We know it was before 70 A.D., and we know it was after the birthing of the church. And some people have, have dated it around 64 to 68 A.D., and if, that is, and if that is an accurate time, and I do think it's an accurate time, it has been discerned by them spending many, 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 many hours and, and a lot of research time trying to order it, trying to put the things in the right order as to what must have happened before something else happened because this thing has happened or that thing has happened, which is what Carrie was explaining, Okay. Um, it also makes us aware, though, this timelining, doing this as a timeline for yourself, this makes us aware of how new the, our faith in Christ and of the church was at the time that they received this information. So I think that is also very helpful. I mean, honestly, the whole New Testament is going to be new writings, right? It's going to be early in the, the new birthing of the church. But I do think that having an understanding of what things had already been presented to them and had circulated through those churches for them to read and have, have access to, what, what measure, what amount of teachings had they uh, already had, it's just insightful, to say, oh yeah, they, they did probably already know those things. And so when you see a letter like Hebrews then come, where he's not only exhorting, but he's also rebuking in some places. He's giving them warnings and rebukes about specific things. Now what you're going to come to see when I give you this list is, the reason is, is because they have had enough time. And there's one specific verse. I want you to, someone to open it up. S- chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, I think it is. And see, you know, he gives a very pointed instruction to them. Maybe it was in five. Okay. Yes, there you go. So he's, and he tells them they're what? Somebody read that. Okay. So he is exhorting them to leave behind the the elementary teachings. Does anybody know what that means yet? I can't wait for us to dig into that chapter and really unravel what that's talking about, the elementary teachings and the dead works that he's speaking of there. But we need to know that Hebrews was written and and what was written already, what were they already aware of? So I'm going to just give you a list here. We, and I'm not even going to try to give it in any specific order, really, but James is probably written. Uh, f- First and second Thessalonians is out. Galatians is done. First and second Corinthians. Romans and Philippians. I'm giving these abbreviations. I hope that's okay with y'all. Uh, Colossians. Philemon and Ephesians, Uh, Luke and Acts, First and Second Timothy, Mark, and Matthew quite a bit. If you think of how many books there are in the New Testament, what is still to be written, Jude, Revelation, the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So you can see then at this point why this author is saying the things that he's saying to them and why there seems to be such stern warning and rebukes in here Uh, And a great measure, a great deal of his time is spent exhorting them to move on, to move forward in their faith, right, to mature in it. These are the things that are available to me. I thought that was very helpful to me. Now, another thing I had, one of the other questions I had said was to kind of just in general talk about the expectations that Israel had concerning their uh, coming Messiah, the Christ. What do you know just off the top of your head about what the expectation was for this coming Messiah? that he was going to be some kind of a political ruler. He was going to come to rule and reign as a king, right? Okay. Well, we now we know he's re- ruling eternally, and they thought that, but they really thought that when he came, that immediately there would be a kingdom set up and that. And quite honestly, what do you think their motive is in really wanting that? Okay,
1: okay
0: wait, wait, go ahead. hmm They wanted to be they wanted things to be back to the David stage. That's right. They wanted to have their own rule over their own land again. And and not only that, what what else did they want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They really they really kind of wanted to get even, don't you think, with the world that had been oppressive to them. They wanted to to overpower the other kingdoms so that they would be the head and not the tail, as God had promised, right? Okay. Right. Uh, Very good. That's right. Okay, so there... <laughs> Yes, they really were looking for the king, the king to come to set up a kingdom and that there would be basically things would be set right and that the, all their oppressors would be, de- have been dealt with, right? That was the second part. Right. And as a matter of fact, the, uh, this author, I looked up a little, I' actually read like three or four articles online about why um, so many Jews missed the Messiah, his coming, yes. absolutely. Excuse me. I'm going to read just a little bit of this article to you, and I'm missing a lot from the beginning, but it talks about this. The people of Israel were often oppressed by pagan nations, but they knew that they would eventually be vindicated when the Messiah King came to release the oppressed. However, many did not understand how they would be vindicated. John the Baptist, for instance, was one who was imprisoned and eventually put to death at the hands of these wicked men. Um, It's evident that the freedom from oppression that Jesus um, brought is not necessarily freedom from physical prisons and oppression by human governments. Obviously, that was not what he did, right? But to be set free from the power of sin that keeps men in spiritual bondage and separates them from a holy God. So when you mentioned that what they were not understanding was that the freedom that he was going to bring was also f- was first and foremost this freedom from sin and for them to come to a place of understanding and recognizing they had this need right uh, uh, thank you I'm sorry I'm choking thank you. I know the sign. Okay. thank you people are quick to protest and cry out for deliverance when oppressed and imprisoned by mere men. But many refuse to admit that they are slaves to sin, and this is what ultimately destroyed them, the Jews, the Jewish nation. Hebrews presses the Jewish people to let go of the traditions of law-keeping for a true act of worship based in repentance, faith, and obedience. Did you see that when you were doing your work this week, that those are the points that just keep coming up over and over in this particular book? not freedom gained by a conquering king, but freedom gained by a great high priest who once for all gives a blood sacrifice that is final, complete, and truly freeing. This is what they really missed with this. And many of the uh, prophetic statements, as Diane brought up, was they had a double meaning in them. And what did they do? They cherry-picked. Oh, yeah, we like the king that's going to come and crush our enemies. So that's the one they focused on. But they missed the suffering king. They missed the suffering savior. They missed those titles where he would would, uh, be stripped and beaten and um, put to death on a cross. The Redeemer has come to Zion, gentle and riding upon a donkey. It was indeed a triumphal entry because, as the prophet Zechariah had said, he will set the prisoners free and lead your sons, O Zion, in a victorious battle against your sons, O oh Greece, can you see where their, their focus would be on this conquering king? But Israel never imagined that the victory would be won as a victory over sin and death and that many sons of Greece would be born again and, and be given the spirit of the Messiah and be counted among his holy nation. That blew them away, right? That's the, the need for Paul to write so many instructional letters about the, the breaking down of that barrier wall and the uniting of two peoples into one. As the psalmist wrote, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia 2 and Tyre along with Cush, and will say this one was born in Zion. That's a quote out of Psalms. Many Jews thought that the Messiah would vindicate Israel Israel by destroying the pagan nations who were oppressing God's people. But, But Jesus did not come to vindicate one sinner over another he did not come to show favor to Jews over Gentiles while both were separated from God on account of their sin. He came to reconcile both to God and to reveal his grace to the humble, but he hides himself in the, pro- the proud and the self-righteous, whether Jews or Gentiles. The victory that the Messiah won on the cross was to break down the barriers and dividing walls of hostility and to create in himself one new man out of the two, therefore destroying those who oppose his kingdom. Interesting, n- new way of looking. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. The two men on the road to Emmaus and the Carol is that correct Carol that's what you mentioned earlier was this passage two men on the road to Emmaus were uh, dejected and downcast because of their worldly hopes and expectations of the Messiah's kingdom and that it had all been dashed but Jesus said to them how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the Christ have to suffer these things And then enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's in Luke 24. Um, I'm going to jump all the way to the end, though. I want to give you one more point out of this paper I thought was good. When he does appear from heaven in his glory and power at the close of this present age, it will be to finally destroy all rebellion against the kingdom of God. We will get that King of Kings one day. Israel missed the fact that there was first the the need and the necessity to handle what was first a first importance, which was man's sin, and to give us true freedom from uh, from the penalty of death, to bring us into a oneness and a fellowship with. With God and to restore uh, that that spirit of God in us, that he's promised He would do, to bring that in that new covenant, that spirit that would dwell within us, rather than being uh, external laws written on tablets of stone, we would have that that letter of the law written within our hearts by the Spirit of God, that then would guide us and give us a conscience which allows us to walk uh, freely and yet under the discipline of the of god's righteous living right holy living he is not coming to vindicate the worldly expectations of unbelieving jews or gentiles by his first coming he brought salvation to all who believe and and humble themselves when he comes again he is not coming to bring salvation boy do we know that if we study revelation you know he's not coming next time for these same measures um He is not coming once again to make atonement for men's sin, but to bring salvation to those who believe and are patiently waiting for his coming. Now that is a quote right out of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of revelation of the Messiah and his kingdom. But God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's out of Second Peter, which by the way has been written. All right. So that kind of sets a little bit more contextually of a, of a, background for us that's outside of what we did in our homework. but it's just All I did was ask myself a couple of questions and make myself a little timeline. And even if it's not in the homework, I think that every time you start a new book this is a good habit for us to be in. Try to give yourself as much boundaries and insight into the people that you're going to be studying or the book that you're going to be studying so that you can kind of have a a good grip on why is this author having to write these things to them? What was going on for them that cause them to be at this place, um, hopefully, as we go through this book, we are going to see very good and direct application in our own personal lives as well, because after all, humanity really doesn't change much through the generations. We still tend to have the same weaknesses, those same sins that creep in, right? The same apathy, the same laziness, the same undisciplined measures, which is where I started when I read the article about the illiteracy that's going on in America today concerning God's word. All right, so that will be on your chart when you get it this week. I'll give you a little bit more um, (coughs) about what most Jews were looking for and what the problem was with them. Um, Hold on again. I'm having allergy issues, as you guys probably know. uh uh-huh. cedar season is really the pits. Okay. <coughs> All right, now let's go on. Let's look at, again, historical setting. Just to give us a little bit more, we've already, where's my pen? Here it is. One of the things she asked us to do in our homework was to pay attention to any kind of clues about where we are in history, what has gone on, what has already taken place. So if you wanted to just make a list of a few historical things, uh, and it can be inclusive of things that we see here too, but where are we in history to give us book context? Okay, Jesus has come. Okay, there's Roman rule taking place at the time. It's under Roman rule. That's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that one. I'm going to put this 1-3 on here. Okay, say it again. There's, uh, well, and do we see persecution? A little bit, didn't we? Okay, Timothy is going to be released. And also it says, even they themselves, when they first received the word of God, that they endured all kinds of persecution, didn't it? Okay, what else? The temple is up. Any other points? I'm just going to put on here, the temple is in 1310. I'm going to take you there now. Earlier, I I had asked you about it, but I'm going to take you there now. 1310, someone open that up. Okay, do you see it? In 1310, he talks about the tabernacle that is up and present and that those who serve at that tabernacle do not have a right to eat at our altar, right? Right? That There's a distinction. What gives you uh, privilege to eat at our table, at our altar, according to everything that's written before this in in the book of Hebrews? Faith in Jesus Christ. So until you come into faith in Jesus Christ, you're not allowed to sit at our altar, the altar that we worship at. And uh, why might this statement be significant in this particular book? What, What kind of things does it suggest to us about what's going on with these people? And, yeah, okay, and the were work, works in the law a real problem for these believers, apparently? Yes, yes. Apparently so, because these are people who had been under that system of worship for all these generations. You know, if we, if we were to back up on our timeline, you're talking about Mount Sinai from the days of the giving of the law. Then they came in eventually, uh, what, 40 or so years later, and they got themselves onto the land, then they began to establish their nation. Once they, they built the temple then with, um, under uh, Solomon, Then they had a whole system in place, and they had that for many generations from then all the way through. Now, there were times when, for instance, Babylon came in, it was destroyed, and they had to rebuild it, right? So there were some problems along the way with this. But what you know is they had a system of worship that was integrated into their whole life, their whole system of life. And even when they were in the tabernacle in the wilderness, they had a system of worship, right? Prior to that, if you go to Leviticus, you see that. So this idea of works, um, kind of having that, for them, worshiping God included works. The works of bringing a sacrifice, the works of going to the temple and, and presenting things to the priest, right? And having a priest, a physical priest, as a mediator between themselves and their God. So this was generations and generations of habitual habit. Would you say that you uh, have ever had an experience even with other people, even today? It's not going to probably be the Jewish system, but who have had religious experiences all the years that they've grown up, and this is so integrated into them, it is probably one of the biggest barriers that has to be broken through that they might let it go so that they can move into true faith in Christ and walk and live according to the new covenant. It is very difficult. If you come from a a system of worship in particular that is contrary to true biblical life, then you have a huge obstacle to overcome because what might be some of the issues that are going to come up for, for you if you basically abandon your family's traditions of of life and living and worship? Yeah, the family might just totally turn on you. Yeah. And what else? I, I'm
2: going to...
0: And think about, think about it even in more detail. Every holiday that comes up, Your family is celebrating in a certain way. Um, Every time a child is born, there's a certain habitual thing a certain ex- expectation of what should happen or shouldn't happen I mean there's and each culture ha- and each religion outside of Christianity has their own little thing and so if you are if you grew up in a family and maybe you, the, all the rest of your family is still even involved in it and in this case these are Hebrews and we're talking directly about the temple they must have been right where that temple was right it was still central in their life and a, temp- and a temptation for them of some sort, correct? But also because the Lord,
1: they had the scriptures where God said, you do it this
0: way, mm-hmm. you know,
1: and you had to follow up
0: very clearly. Absolutely. So what they weren't getting is the fulfillment of those scriptures. Right. Jesus. Right. And
1: because they didn't catch on to that, they were, and in many ways, afraid to go
0: away from what right. I think what was really cool, though, I do remember when we studied Romans, how Paul went in and explained how we were no longer under the law, but now under grace, right? And that um, that the covenant had literally been fulfilled, not not abandoned, not broken, not destroyed, but fulfilled in the now in Christ Jesus. You have a new husband, it says, right? So, but, but, but and Hebrews is going to teach it in a slightly different way. Hebrews, what did you see as the emphasis Hebrews puts into place as the major, seems like the major obstacle for them is what? The The high priest. You know, how many people have grown up with a priest as their intercessor, and they enter into faith in Christ Jesus, and they just can't give up their priest, because they just, that's such a habit for them. And, what is the danger of not being able to do that? You're not serving Christ. Does Hebrews actually give us any clues or, or insights or even rebukes and corrections toward that kind of behavior where. The, the,
2: the, the, priest, was, the priest had to make a sacrifice for himself to purify himself mm-hmm. along with the sins of everybody else. And so the blood of the bulls and goats never actually did purify your sins.
1: Right. Kind of right
0: and by going absolutely so so what we really learned is he's better than their other system right right now um if you have a system though where you keep going back to this priest after you've made a profession of faith in Christ Jesus what happens to your testimony when the world sees you claiming to be a Christian but going back to an old system of worship
2: System that
0: maybe has you know. It does contradict, doesn't it? Because the whole point with Christ coming and being that once for all sacrifice, then if you keep going back and continuing to sacrifice, what does that say then about your true belief that Jesus did it once for all? You don't really believe that. Yeah. Right. Or in another another way of viewing this, I mean there's a lot of possibilities. I think it's
1: he's very, right. very
0: That's right. You know, That's so right. Saying, you're fall away. That's exactly right. That's right. And uh, this brings up this point that you just brought up about the idea of falling away, brings up the question. And the misunderstanding, I think, of Hebrews uh, so often is that it sounds like, oh, you can lose your salvation, that you can come into faith, but then because you keep going back and doing things that you're not supposed to, then you lose your salvation, right? And exactly, that is not that is not what Hebrews teaches. And so we're going to more clearly unravel those particular passages and see what it is that's being taught in there so that you see the clarity of the teaching that you do not violate known doctrines, which says, if God has indeed sealed you with his spirit until the day of redemption, that is indeed what he has done. Right? Amen. Amen. Okay. Yes. right Right. I also think in a lot of ways what this author does is he elevates our al- altar. He says, look, we got a better altar than they got. Isn't it better to have a better car and a better house and a better pair of shoes? Or, I mean, something better is always better, right? Like the picture
2: of like the stuff that's here on earth—the tabernacle, the temple, everything like that—are
0: just copies of what's actually. In that's heaven. right.
2: And Jesus is in heaven now at the
0: real. temple. At the real temple, and this is who you have embraced, right? It's exciting. Isn't it exciting? It's a very exciting message because he is really trying to instruct them doctrinally about the difference between where they were and where they are now so that they don't feel like they're giving up something, but, but rather, rather they are getting something, right? That's where he's trying to elevate and take their minds to this new place
1: That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Every layer of uh, these regulations was built into them and their habits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so much easier to get in contact of things that our senses touch.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love, too, there's going to be another subject that's going to come up in here for us to study, and that's really strongly There's the subject of sanctification. And I'm hoping we can really split the hairs again as we go through this and say, look, when he says that we are to do these certain things, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about sanctification. But one of the things he does say in here very clearly is this: says, without this sanctification, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. If there's no evidence in your life, what, what is that evidence of? That you don't actually have salvation. Because there should be evidence that's seen that your faith is true. Because one of the uh, chapters in 4, he talks about those who fell in the wilderness and died and were left. They did not get to enter into the the, uh, the, land, the land of promise. Why not? Because of unbelief and because of? They, they gave a synonym to it, disobedience, because obedience is, a, is, a, is a, the, the double-sided coin to faith. If you really have faith, we will see obedience. It's not that obedience gets you into faith, but by faith, then as a result, there will be evidence that you really do. Do you really believe it? Then you should be living it. And without that kind of sanctification, God's word in the book of Hebrews says, without that, you will not see the kingdom of heaven because that's the evidence that you truly do believe. You can say you believe all you want, but if you aren't living it, you better be checking yourself. Yes, that's exactly right. that's exactly that has always been there that has always been israel's problem that was their problem back in the wilderness like they wanted to bring in these egyptian gods and these roman gods and these uh, what i mean they just always wanted to to bring it in and mix and i don't know if you guys remember but one of the things that just blew me away when when i went to israel the first time our tour bus guide, was a guy, and he would get off the bus and he'd say, see, here's this, and see, here's this, right? And he's pointing and and directing. But one of the things I noticed him habitually doing was to show us how side by side was the synagogue and the mosque, and the synagogue and the mosque. And I thought, man, they still haven't learned. God says, purge those things from your land. Instead, he was proud of the integration of these two things together, how that made him PC, basically, made him politically correct, and made him more loving because he's receiving it and, belie- and allowing it to be in their, in their domain, in their world. <clears throat> Say it again. <clears throat> exactly. So, hold on. I'm having a real hard time with my throat. Okay. All right. We've got to move on. Let's get into our author. Let's see what kind of points we learn about him. who huh oh yeah right James you may leave no (laughs) you're in trouble with me James you know better okay okay let's talk about this author what do we know about this author okay he he does know okay now you're doing some analytical analytical insights so we're going to analyze the points that we pulled directly from scripture and then we're going to draw some conclusions. And you jumped there. So I'll go ahead and put it down. Tell no, me again. Uh, we well, ahead. no, but go ahead and give it to me again. Tell me He pretty the author knows a lot about the Jewish. Okay, he, so, so he is probably, probably Ju- He is probably Jewish. Probably, yeah. And probably if not Jewish, he is very closely associated Yeah, okay. I'm going to put 1 1 on there as the point of reference for that. Okay, so. Okay. This is the problem with this book.
1: Yeah, God
0: spoke to the fathers, not our fathers. Or not my father, either, yeah. <laughs> about the Jews to the Jews. Right, right. I do agree with James that, however, as you continue in this book, it is very clear he has a very good command of the Jewish system and so forth. So if he is not Jewish, he at least really, really knows the Jewish system very well. So, but we don't know which is the whole point, right? Okay, so that's a, actually, that is a good point to put forward, at least at this point where you know it's just, he might be Jewish, he probably is, but we can't absolutely lay a claim to that. So it would not be a point that you would want to hang your hat on or, or fall on your sword over with anyone, right? Okay. Uh, Margaret, did you have a, co- a... Okay. Um, I liked, okay, go ahead. Give me something else. Yes, thank you. So That's, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So this is not one of the apostles. Okay, it was first spoken through, the Lord. through the Lord. And it was confirmed to us. And so then you go to the next point. And confirmed to us. By those who heard. To us. By those who heard. So from
1: that end, one is I would say it's not an apostle, but one of the first ones that Jesus spoke directly to. And remember, Paul always identified himself as an apostle. He That's
0: he never did you're absolutely right okay so th- uh, for those of you who are saying well I really think it's Paul this is a really good point that you have to strongly look at within the within the um, it's kind of like you're gonna filter through all the points that are are stated about uh, the clues that are given basically and here is a very strong point I think a very strong statement that says it is not Paul because how does Paul always identify himself as an apostle although abnormally born and he always said and no one taught the word of God to me but who did Jesus himself what does this statement tell us I didn't hear it from the Lord directly but I heard it from those who did so whoever this guy is, he did not hear from the Lord directly, and he did not hear from even uh, um, e- even the preachings of Jesus directly. He heard it from those who did. So he would have heard it from Paul and from the other uh, apostles or the other disciples who were in close association with Jesus. But he himself did not hear it directly from the Lord. Well,
1: in 2 Thessalonians, you know, he said, listen, this is how I begin my life
0: signature mm-hmm. you can see it and that is definitely absolutely amazing. absolutely Paul Paul always I Paul I Paul I Paul okay so those are all the things that you have to weigh now with that also said I still would not fall on my sword it's not that important however it is a good clue that this is probably not Paul and we know therefore it is also is pro- he's probably Jews Jesus it is probably not Paul and it is also uh, not an apostle, correct? It's not an apostle, for sure. So can I? Uh, yes, okay, go ahead, James. Sort of one of my favorite
2: theories of it that's, uh, uh, that's, that I've heard from other places, but I think it's pretty good, and that after reading it, I kind of believe this, that it maybe wasn't written by Paul, but it was because it, according to the scholars, the, the actual is like very high level classical greek more like luke and acts Mm -hmm. and so it's the, the the my favorite theory is that it was that it's luke writing a sermon that paul is giving so like the teachings and the speakings of paul luke is compiling them maybe from one sermon or from a you know various different sermons and writing them down and
0: but format. okay, I would disagree. But does anybody else disagree, and why? Well, this is good. This is really good. This is really good. I love this. There's, 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 okay, there's do you okay do you see this letter as excerpts from sermons? No. There are I certain, absolutely. There are
2: certain t- clues that would make you think that because he's talking about. <clears throat> I, I need to
0: actually. Yeah, I, I know, and I and it. Yeah. Okay, Celeste. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's interesting. Although Barnabas was also present with the Lord, and he would have heard it from the Lord, so I would say it—it it brings it. I would say no, it's not Barnabas for the same reason. Probably not because he didn't hear, because he said he, he, it was first spoken through the Lord, but it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So he did not hear directly from the Lord. Barnabas did. Yeah. He was a companion to the other apostles and he was, would have been there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh good. Yay. Tell us. Uh-huh. But my question is, I think it's better to not try to guess and go through what you Absolutely. Absolutely. No, absolutely and we're gonna do that. Okay. And so you don't have any gener- any other input. You just wanted to say get back on track. <laughs> which I'm going to, which I am. I have a whole list. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I love that. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so that's, a, there. you know, there's always that group that likes to throw that in. And I can tell cool. you why. Yeah. You know what's very... What's very interesting to me, though, when we get into some analytical things, though, is the position and power of this writer among the, as far as leadership is concerned. So hold on to that. hat. Let's go through a few more points about what we absolutely know about this author. Okay, tell me, I also want you to go to the next verse, 2-4, because we came out of the book of Acts, and I thought that this was a point I missed the last time I studied this, but this time I saw it. Do you see in in 2-4 any point about him? He's, he's talking about the that that salvation was spoken uh, through through the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard it. Right, so he's talking about those who heard it, and he says about them in verse four. What? Isn't that cool that these who came, these basically these would be potentially apostles. Right, who led this man to the Lord, and those apostles were when they gave him the word of God. It says that they were they testified to him and the others that were with him both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to God's will. So, what does what did we learn in the book of Acts when they were going when the apostles were going about preaching and bringing people into faith? What were they accompanied by? Signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So apparently, whoever brought him the gospel was an apostle who had been endowed with these gifts of signs, wonders, and miracles. Isn't that awesome? That's exciting. Having just come out of Acts, we can kind of see a good relationship there. So confirmed by those who heard, and they were accompanied by signs... Wonders, miracles, miracles and gifts of, gifts of Holy Spirit, which would be the spiritual giftings, right? All right. All right. So that's in 2-4. I just think that's really cool. So those who heard, and those who heard then gave it to him, right? All right. So he says in 4-2, what about himself? Okay, he had the good news. The good news preached to him. And what was his response? Does it say in verse 3 what, what his response was? He believed, and then he did, and in believing, what happens to him? He enters into the rest of God. He believed and entered the rest of God. Now, that's a significant phrase that we are going to do a lot of in-depth work on when we get there, but it's very insightful about understanding what he means about that he entered into the rest of God, right? What what does that exactly mean? Yes, the we. Okay, that's a good point, which we haven't quite brought up yet. Okay, go ahead. Yes, I know you. It is hard to dissect it when it comes to marking your observation worksheets. I would say if it's a clear, uh, um, if if the information more clearly helps you define your author, just mark it author. Uh, but I do that and then sometimes I just circ- add a little extra circle around to say that this is a we and an us statement, meaning them and us together. Which what, by the way, does that do for the author and the recipients then as far as bringing them together? They had a relationship, they had a relationship and the relationship is bound in what? In their faith. So in other words, they all belong to the same faith system. They belong under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, right? That they're both in this same covenant together. So he believed, not only had he believed, but he also says that they believed and entered into the rest of God. But then he quantifies that by then going on and saying, if certain things are evidenced, then it's true that you entered. Now, who can decide who has entered and who has not? Only God. So what what is the point then for us to even talk about the idea of evidence? Okay, d- d- what kind, and what is what is discernment? And what do you mean by that? What does that do for you specifically? Okay. Okay, yeah. is it for us to know? Thank you, Susan. Explain.
1: Well, we can't know whether other people
0: are there, but we can say, Hey, am I there? So would this be more most valuable to us as self examination? Absolutely. Do you see the author in, (laughs) do you see the author in this book often doing that, pointing them to, you need to do these things. You need to pay attention. You need to whatever, right? And he says, and if you're, and, and you should be able to basically examine your own life and know whether or not there is evidence there that points to the fact that you have entered into this. And one of, the, particularly in chapter four, he is very heavy on the, on the subject of obedience, being obedient to, now in this case, it's, it's an obedience to a new covenant versus an old covenant. So that would be a major subject thing that's going to com- pop up for us in this book, the contrast between the, what was done under the old and what is now expected of them under the new and how he's drawing them into this new thing. Yes, yes. right. Right, that's right. At this point, they didn't. They needed to be reminded. That's exactly right. And, you know... As we are all studying the book of Hebrews, the, what we want to do for ourselves as, we're, as we progress along and as we begin to build our teachings and our doctrines and new insights and new ways of looking at things, we just need to be willing to say, you know, I'm, oh, I'm right here. Oh, I think I might be wrong there. And as long as we're willing to do that so that we grow and, we, and then in the end, what you want to do is land in a place where you say, I, my conscience is clear before God, that I've done my best to be in agreement with God and to live in agreement with God, does not this author actually do that at the close of this book? Do you remember in chapter 13 where he says that about them? He asks them for prayer. Somebody find that verse. It's it's like almost at the end. Uh, 18. I love this. Somebody, Carrie, uh, K- read that because you, you, you're a... Isn't that awesome? Now, very, very interesting. He asks for prayer, and he bases it upon the fact that what is he doing in his personal life? He is conduct- there's, in other words, there's an evidence in his life that he is actually walking with the Lord. He is, he is manifesting it through his decisions, through the things that come out of his mouth, by the activities that he participates in, and how he goes about doing business daily. And so he says, based on that, I am saying to you, I have a clear conscience, pray for me. Because who does God answer prayer for? The one who's being disobedient or the one that's being obedient? obedience. It's one of the assurances of answered prayer is when you're in right relationship with God. Now, obviously the first right relationship is salvation itself, but also the scriptures are very clear in other places that some people are weak and some are sick and some have fallen asleep because of disobedience, even though they're in faith. And so we have to keep all this in balance. Yeah. um, Yes. love it. Okay, he wants to be restored. No, he doesn't say that he's in prison. It sounds like he is off on a journey or on a mission. It sounds like though when he talks about that wanting to be restored to them, he also wants to come with who when he comes? With Timothy. So he's waiting for Timothy who is going to be released or has just recently been released and he d- desires if Timothy comes quickly he desires to come with him okay oh yeah I know I yeah yeah there you go okay okay he d- he very interesting I think it's very interesting that a lot of people say oh he was absolutely not in in Italy but that he was referring to blah 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 and I'm going I do not know how they read that but I'm not going to argue what it says is what it says, so what does it say? He says that he sends greetings, right <laughs> <laughs> All right Yeah, <laughs> I know I love that okay, okay <laughs> that would be that would be a me statement. I have written to you briefly. It's only 13 chapters, briefly, <laughs> and some of those chapters are like five pages long, but it's brief. So I thought, oh, I love this man. That would definitely be Paul. <laughs> yeah. Um, does Luke do that? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. He says to all. Except that Luke would have heard it directly from the Lord too. No. Right. Oh, that's right. No, he investigated everything, didn't he? That's right. And he investigated it carefully. You are. That's right. You are right. So maybe Luke. That's a good possibility. No, I mean, I said like Luke. He sends greetings to all the saints and leaders. Um,. Okay, 1324 is where that one comes from. Okay. All right, so um, we see that he has a good conscience. I didn't get that one in there. Coming back to that. Uh-huh. that we have a good conscience. Yeah, but the good conscience is, is the what he's really saying is as far as I know, everything that I have done, I have a good conscience, and I desire to, to do that. So it kind of gives you a, a, an understanding that he understands conduct. His conduct and obedience to God is related to answered prayer. Okay. <laughs>
1: You Timothy and everything, and, and these people. And now you know that Timothy is in prison, so it's after that. He's <coughs> in prison. Don't you think the people they're writing to would want to know how Paul is doing at this point? Yeah. And there isn't a mention of Paul right. at this point. And so me, it may be right after Paul was executed. You know, that's why I put it closer to the 68th, um, because... Want to go back to these people? They obviously have a relationship with them. Mm You want to go back to these people, and he would say, "And Paul is okay,
0: or you know, Paul is like a big." But he doesn't mention him. But I also think this: he doesn't because he doesn't identify himself. There is an assumption that they know him and respect him, and there's no need for introductions. So whoever he is, it's also, so it, it's somebody that's well known. Okay, so let's do some analytical conclusions in our, in our talk through. He did not hear the gospel directly from Jesus. We know that. That's the conclusion. It was secondhand from those who did hear it from Jesus. Okay? So that would not be Paul, in my opinion. Um, he was not an apostle, in other words, of Jesus. Jesus. Paul claims to be an apostle. I don't think that can be Paul. Uh, He was entrusted by the churches to instruct and correct others of faith, right? We know from previous studies and discussions about this that this is an earned position of leadership, right? It also requires several years of training and vetting to get to that place. Do you remember that? Yes, it does. There was very cool. We did uh, research on... uh, some of the ancient writings of the early fathers, and even in was it, James, was it the book of James, James talked about, uh, we found a writing, and it was a letter back and forth between Paul and James, and he talked about the vetting, and don't give it to young people too soon. Give them small portions of it at a time. See how well they do with it, and then give them more later. And, and they said no less than, was it, was it six years? No less than six years of training before they're ready to begin to take on the leadership of teaching right? Otherwise they were just given baby steps along the way. It's really good. He see, so, so we know that he, whoever this man is that's writing Hebrews, it has arrived to a place of having been vetted and trained, right? And he's considered... Um, a safe person to do this kind of writing think about all the subjects that he's covering with these people and how he's trying to explain this new covenant and he was given not only the responsibility to do it but also the right to do it and the people at the receiving end received it later this book was canonized so we've got a lot of of points in here that show us that this is really a person of spiritual maturity right okay he seems to have been involved also in uh, leadership ministry to many churches. He mentions Italy, right? And we see him writing back to this Hebrew church. Those are two churches we see for sure. And obviously there would probably been, have been others also. Um, he does have a strong in-depth knowledge of the Jewish system of worship and the Old Testament scriptures, which he quotes a lot. We're going to start getting into that pretty soon. Lots of Old Testament quote, quotes in here, right? Um, and he has this. Somewhere. Yeah, somewhere it says. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he does do that occasionally. He does. You're right. Occasionally. So he's a little more loosey goosey than Paul was. That's true. But but he does know the scripture. And it's very interesting because, you know, remember, they didn't have the books of the Bible broken down like we do. It was in scrolls after scrolls after scrolls. They just had to read until they hit the spot they were looking for, you know. Uh, He has a solid understanding of the new covenant, and he's able to compare it to the old and instruct for understanding. That takes a, a pretty good command of doctrine. So that's what we know about our author, for sure. We know he's, he's, he, he is in a place of leadership. He is trustworthy. His writing was canonized. We know, therefore, it was under inspiration of the word of God. We know that he, he also seems to have a very deep concern for these people getting corrected. You know, and he's, he, and he's brave enough to actually rebuke them and encourage them. So, um, all right, so now let's move on to our recipients and see what we find out about them. That is written to Hebrews. Is that written to all Jerusalem or is that back to the. Excuse me. We don't know, we don't know for sure. What we're, what we're going to assume is because he's writing so much about the temple and about the priests, it's probably at Jerusalem. But, again, it's a, it's a guess because it doesn't clearly identify. There are, but they're in direct connection to and have direct access to the temple and the temple worship system, and that is the conflict that's going on in this book. Have you, did you see that when you read it through? I know.
1: Even the new Jews, I mean the new Christians, didn't go back to Jerusalem.
0: Well, they did. They, they traveled about within that realm. But, but the writing to the Hebrews is probably those most closely associated in is geographically in close affiliation with the temple. Mm-hmm. So what that means, I can't be specific, but I would guess Jerusalem would be a very good guess. Okay. Yes. Author. It's not in scripture. I told you it's an ancient, we, I did some research when we were doing the book of James and I pulled up a document that was written by the early church fathers and it was, it was um, a letter that was going back and forth between James and Paul and it, it gives an account of their conversation in this record. So it's, It was actually a letter between the two of them, which was really cool. I can look for it, though, Carol, if you're interested, and I'll, I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, it was really cool because what we were talking about is, remember in James it says, don't let many among you become teachers, right? And it talked about, um, uh, I can't remember how, but having to basically, again, because they're held in higher accountability because of their teaching and what the, the effect a the teacher has on those whom they are teaching is massive and so the responsibility is is to be understood to be one of high um, standards and so you want to make sure that whoever is teaching is one that has been vetted well and so what I did is I went back and did some research into James um, in that time era and I found a document through the early church writings, I think that's what I had googled in there and I found this one document that was actually a letter between the two of them. I read it in class. It was very cool. And in there, they were explaining the process of not being, allowing people to teach who had not had proper training and had enough time to grow in their faith. And it talked about otherwise you, you cause them to stumble because mm-hmm. pride can cons- sometimes come in for them, for one thing. If you give them too much responsibility too soon, they get too big for their britches fall on their face, which is what I probably would do. Okay. All right. So let's look at the recipients now. Let's talk about who they are. What did you find out about them? Okay. Okay. Tell me the scripture verses where you found that, that they are believers. How are they called? Okay, holy brethren, partakers of a holy of a heavenly Oh, of a heavenly calling, calling, sorry. Those are the kinds of things I want to get up here. And th- those were both 3 1. Is that correct? Okay, uh, ten nineteen, and what was the other one? Uh,
1: 312.
0: 12. Oh, okay, okay. So they're called br- holy brethren or brethren. All right. Okay. Partakers of Jesus. It, does it say Jesus Christ? Okay, because I was thinking, I didn't remember seeing it phrased that way before. Partakers of Christ. You know, very interesting too, because Christ is, is a phrase or a, or a title that's given to the coming Messiah for them, the Christ. And it has a very specific identifying marker about it. When it's spoken among the Jewish people, when they say about the Christ, that says volumes to them right? So when they speak about the Christ, it's not just like, oh, that's Katie. No, it's the Christ, the anointed one, the one whom we are uh, waiting for, the one who was promised, right? It has all these other connotations to it. So anytime you see the Christ being mentioned, that's an important uh, title, but they are partakers of the Christ. And what verse is that? 314? Okay. All right. Okay, so here's some issues with him. All right, they have become dull of hearing. And that is in which chapter and verse? 511, 511. okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, they should be teachers.
0: They should be teachers. But, okay, and that's all, is that also in 5.11 or 12, 5.12? Okay. Those who have become dull of hearing and need, mil- and m- need milk but should be teachers by now. Okay. Also in four, three, we who have believed. We who have believed. 4 3 very good. Okay, I liked that. That was more like an uh, uh, an exhortation at this point, right? It was, um, and, six, nine, and six nine, beloved, and that's kind of cool because that's a term of endearment. Which kind of shows you the intimacy and the and the closeness of their relationship with one another. okay, the author sees them um, I'm kind of winging this having <laughs> having evidence yes. Okay, so you, is that's in verse ten, right? So yeah, he goes on and talks about their work and their ministry and how they were how they were helping not only serving have ministered to the other believers but are still doing so. So you see in, on, their, that their faith is is not only um, had evidence past tense but they are even presently yet doing so. And so that was again. Another point to the idea of sanctification and it's not only its value for us as Christians but its, its requirement really to be seen in our lives is that there should be something be, that gives evidence to the fact that we are in fact Christians. So the author sees in them that, that they have evidence of things that accompany salvation. Realize the full assurance of hope, and that hope is who? Hope in Christ. I'm just, I'm just going to add that on to clarify it, and that's in six eleven. You said, yeah, okay. Okay, so it says they th- that suffering was endured after receiving um how does it say it after receiving I've got it here somewhere after being enlightened. Thank you. that's better. And that reference is what Pardon suffering was endured after, after being enlightened. So in other words, in other words, they were willing to suffer. And, and then it goes on to explain what all those points are. And we don't want to get too detailed on them right now. When you get into that chapter, you're going to do that. But for right now, all you're looking for the big chunky pieces about who these people are. And What we see is there's evidence. We see that they claim to be Christians. We see that, that they were they were actually given the gospel message and they believed it we see or they said they believed it but on top of that then this author goes on to say and there's evidence that there it was a genuine salvation because there was evidence in your life and one of them is then in 10:32 to 34 that suffering was endured right all right very good Yes. Oh, they should, right? <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> possibly had gone to believe the and they
0: were possibly trying to get away from um, that. Maybe, maybe this is about this is Hebrews 12. Is that where you're at in Hebrews 12? In Hebrews 12, the whole thing is about the Lord's discipline in their life, and and what He's actually directly speaking about there is that if you don't discipline yourself to live in holy conduct or to live in uh, according to this new covenant, this new thing, this new way, then um, the, the Lord is going to discipline because he disciplines those he, whom he loves. And, P.S., and by the way, if there's no discipline, what does that mean about you? You're not even a son, you're illegitimate, meaning you never actually entered into faith because if you, believe, if you belong to God and you're walking outside of it, God is going to discipline you. He will bring some kind of hardship or some kind of um, uh, discipline into your life, just as he says even in First Corinthians, where in 1 Corinthians 11, when you enter before the Lord's table, that there are people who are having to be disciplined, some are weak and some are sick and some actually have fallen asleep. Right, because of the discipline of the Lord. So, chapter 12 is going to be a great lesson to us about discipline from the Lord and how we should view it, you know, and how we should submit to it and allow God to transform our lives and conform us into what He wants us to be as His children. And to understand that there is a responsibility in relationship with God, although it is a relationship that is faith, it's salvation by grace. It's freely given to you, but when you are in it, there should be responsibility on your part then to live according to it. If you truly believe it, you're going to live according to it is what this book is really going to teach us. All right. Uh, 1214 actually concludes that. Does somebody want to read that for me? Mm -hmm. That's it. That's right. So pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no man will see the Lord or no one will see see the Lord. So, in other words, there has to be that evidence or it's not true. He's not saying you don't get it if you don't work for me. He's saying you never had it if I don't see you working. Okay. Put the horse before the cart. Right. All right. He also concludes in 1228, another really good one. What is What do we see there about an exhortation to these people? Therefore,
1: since we receive the kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe.
0: Wow. Isn't that awesome? So our acceptable service, according to the text that we're looking at here, is what? What kind of service is he talking about? What precedes that? What are all the things he's telling them to do before that? Sanctified. Be to, Basically to be sanctified. sanctified. Show gratitude. Mm-hmm. But he actually gives a long list. I don't know if you guys probably didn't get there, but there is all kinds of things. He talks about them. Don't neglect doing good. Obey your leaders. Pray for us. Conduct conduct yourselves honorably in all things. I mean, he gives a long, lengthy list. When you get to the last three chapters, or at least two for sure, but even three, of Hebrews, you, you see a lot of... I call it a laundry list, basically, of things that God expects to see in the life of a believer. And so what we're really going to get heavy duty into in those last few chapters is the sanctification work, right? Before that, before that, in the first few chapters up to that, up until you hit the, the sanctification qualities, what do you see most of the emphasis placed on? Instruction about who? Jesus himself. So just very quickly, what would you say off the top of your head? Because you're going to work on this week. What would you say are some of the key words that you have seen that are book keywords? Jesus the, and the subject of the high priest or priest. Covenant would be a definite good one, because it's It's a huge contrast. Even if the word covenant is not used over and over, they are contrasting two covenants in this entire book. Okay? Faith Faith and belief and hope, which would all kind of be synonymous. You could probably mark them all in the same way if you wanted to, because they don't rise up to be a strong subject independently of one another, but collectively they kind of all... force your, your attention in the same direction. So belief and hope and faith. Amen. Better than. Now, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Carrie. Did everybody pick up on that? The concept of that we are now in something better. And it doesn't always say better, but it implies that it's better. This did this, and it was inadequate. Now this does this, and look at how how great this is, how much more sufficient we find this. The phrase, all things. Yeah. All things.
2: That- Ah,
0: Ah, neat. I'll have to look for that one. I missed that one. All things. Okay. Yes. Yes. So there's a lot of commandments, right? Or exhortation type terms. My suggestion would be, yes, you're going to end up on some of those words doing key word studies, probably on some of them specifically, but it probably would not hurt to just... Kind of identify them all in the same way, mark them all in the same way trying rather than trying to mark each one distinctively, it's going to get too confusing. But anytime there's a word of exhortation, "Do this, uh, don't do that, those kinds of you can maybe mark them in a in a certain way, but do it uniformly, otherwise it's going to get real messy in your book. yeah. All right, well, we did really great, you guys. I think hopefully that gets you started. Next week we will finish up. Next week is a bigger job, which I already did, but you're going to have an observation sheet to do on your chapter themes. You're going to need to title them. You're going to need to come up with all of your uh, your keywords, looking for and defining more clearly the author's purpose for writing as well, OK? All right, guys, thank you so much. It was really good discussion.
1: Mm-hmm. Studying it. hmm uh-huh.